This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Good weather predictions can save lives, whether it's forecasting fire behavior or the track of severe storms. And forecasts are about to improve dramatically thanks to a satellite built in Colorado that's scheduled to launch this weekend. NASA's GOES-R satellite was built in Littleton by Lockheed Martin. Tim Gasparini runs Lockheed's weather satellite program. He speaks with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Tim, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you. I understand the GOES-R satellite is the first of four you're developing. Um, How will they improve weather forecasts? We just recently uh, went through Hurricane Matthew, and um, you know, as you watch the television and you see the pictures of the hurricane as it's traveling up the east coast, it looks kind of like stop-action photography as you see the the pictures that they take, which are typically once every 15 minutes or so. The GOES-R spacecraft has the capability to zoom in on a severe storm and take pictures every 30 seconds. And what that does for the meteorologists is it helps them to be able to predict the track of the storm better, as well as the intensification of the storm better. And does that mean that they perhaps could warn people to evacuate more quickly and they'd know that others might not have to evacuate. They can. If you look at the costs of a hurricane um, as it hits the United States, there's obviously the damage costs, but there's also all of the costs of people having to evacuate and um, flee from the impending storm. And so what the GOES-R spacecraft will do is it will um, hopefully narrow that storm track so that they can identify better where that storm will hit the United States, and it will help them to understand what the power or strength of the storm that they refer to as the category, so that people can be better prepared prepared as that storm comes on shore. Does this have any impact on fire danger warnings or other weather situations that folks in Colorado might want to know about? It does. You know, here in Colorado, I don't worry too much about a hurricane, but I do worry about fire and I think about snowpack a lot. And the uh, the Gozar spacecraft can look at a spot on the earth and it can tell the moisture content of the clouds. It's also got a measurement tuned to fire so that it will better be able to both recognize and predict um, fires, which are very important for us here in the in the West. Um, it also has a, uh, a measurement band tuned to snowpack, so where they can tell better where the snowpack is. And, you know, we don't think about snowpack a lot except for skiing, but the water from snowpack is substantially beneficial for our agriculture and other aspects of the economy. And from what I understand, this will mainly help the U.S. This doesn't really help in terms of severe weather predictions globally? It does not. The two weather satellites, the the uh, one on the east and one on the west, basically span from the middle of the Atlantic to the middle of the Pacific and give a hemisphere, look at the hemisphere that the United States is in so that we can understand the severe weather in southern Canada, United States, North South America. But it does not look at Europe or, or Asia. So, A little bit of history now. How long have satellites been used in weather predictions? Satellites have been used since the uh, the 1960s. So there's two types of weather satellites. 
One type is called a polar orbiting satellite that orbits the Earth across the poles of the Earth. And it basically passes over the same spot of the Earth roughly twice a day. And for severe weather, um, is not very um, helpful in predicting that storm. The geostationary weather satellites stay over one spot of the Earth continuously, and they provide a continuous monitoring of severe storms. And that's what goes our, uh, that's the orbit that goes our goes into as a geostationary weather satellite. And the interesting thing about goes our is that the capabilities are substantially advanced from the. Uh, satellites that we have on orbit. In fact, in the first six months of operation, um, the GOES-R satellite will return more data than all of our previous geostationary weather satellites combined. A recent article in the New York Times titled, Why Isn't the U.S. Better at Predicting Extreme Weather? criticized the National Weather Service for having outdated technology. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, in turn criticized the article, said the country's undergoing a revolution in this arena. Arena. Is the U.S. keeping current or is it behind? Well, with the, uh, with the launch of the spacecraft, we will have um, a premier instrument suite on orbit to be able to make measurements. But once it gets to the ground, in addition to the spacecraft that NOAA is building, they're building an entire ground system to take the measurements off of the spacecraft and convert it into um, to pre- predictions here on the ground for the meteorologists to use. And there's, um, there's a new instrument on board the, uh, the GOES-R spacecraft, the uh, Geostationary Lightning Map which will uh, measure the total amount of lightning on the Earth. As, they've, as the research has shown that um, lightning, the intensification of lightning or the buildup of lightning can be a precursor to severe weather. And right now, we don't have the ability to measure um, all of the lightning that takes place. We can measure cloud to ground, but we cannot measure the lightning that takes place in the clouds. Mm-hmm. And the, the GLM instrument will be able to measure all of the lightning and um, you the, and the meteorologists will be able to use that in weather prediction. I understand that the satellite will also predict space weather. What does that mean? Space weather is important because it can disrupt communications. It can disrupt our power system. It can affect our navigation. And it also can... Um, change our atmosphere. Some of the particles and energy as it gets to the atmosphere actually cause our atmosphere to bloom out and can affect satellites in their orbits. So space weather, although we don't talk about it a lot, is a very important aspect of the GOES-R spacecraft. You're in charge of this program. It's been in development since 2008. And the launch, as we said, has been delayed several times. As the day approaches for this launch, how much of a nail-biter is this for you? You know, we have spent the last six, seven, eight years designing, building, and then testing the spacecraft so that we understand how it behaves. We've taken and subjected it to severe environments. And, you know, truthfully, I always sleep really well the night before. Tim, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Tim Gasparini runs the GOES weather program at Lockheed Martin's campus in Littleton. He's in charge of the new weather satellite that's expected to launch Saturday from Cape Canaveral. Gasparini spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Coming up, a Denver poet who was inspired by the stories of Chinese immigrants to the United States. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's 
Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Writing on the walls of an immigrant detention center inspired Denver poet Tiao Lim Go. This was the Angel Island Immigration Station in San Francisco Bay, where Chinese people coming to America were detained and interrogated in the early 1900s. As they waited, the detainees wrote poetry on the walls. The poems in the men's barracks are still there, but the women's were destroyed in a fire. Go imagines what those lost poems might have been in her new collection. It's called Islanders. And Tiao, welcome to the program. Hi. Will you briefly set up some of the historical context behind the Angel Island Immigration Station? Well, the Angel Island Immigration Station was um, an outgrowth of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Um, In the late 1800s, America suffered a a bank panic and depression. A bank panic? Yes. And that's um, 1873. And... um, the Chinese had come f- during the California gold rush and to build the transcontinental railroads. But after the bank panic, when the, the jobs dried up, you know, they were out of work, the whites were out of the work, and the Chinese became the target of white anger. And that resulted in the, Chinese, the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. And how does that lead to the creation of a station like this? Um, the the Chinese were at first detained on in a warehouse in San Francisco, and because of safety issues, and um, the government wanted a place where the the Chinese could be could be detained without you know the fear of escape, just like just like Alcatraz, right across I the see. bay, an immigration version of Alcatraz, and these were. Chinese immigrants who had just come to the United States were hoping to make it here, or these were those who had already landed? Um, it's a mix of both. Okay. Um, m- many of the immigrants were new immigrants trying to come into the United States. Okay. But some of the Chinese who, who were detained on Angel Island, they were in the U.S. before. Some of them were U.S. citizens, some of them might not be, but they were detained when they were trying to re-enter the United States. And how long might they spend at, um, at Angel Island? It's anywhere between two weeks is generally the minimum as they go through the whole interrogation process. There were some cases, especially if you failed interrogations and you appeal and you fail and you appeal, it can take months. And I think the longest, it's either a year and a half or almost two years. And what what were these interrogations like? Do you have some sense of what they were being asked or screened for? Um the the biggest the biggest um, category of you know immigrants trying to come in were were the family families of Chinese who are already in the United States. That was one of the exceptions of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It allowed for immediate families of Chinese already in the U.S. and um, in in order to prove that the that there's a relationship. Let let's say. If I come in and I claim that you are my father, okay, and um, they will ask me a set of questions, example and uh, things is like, "Where is the rice bin in your family home?" Oh, where is the rice bin? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you know what direction, you know, do your house face? Oh, how far are you from the village square? And it's all the minutiae details of everyday life. They will ask me the same questions. They will ask you the same questions. And then they would see if they matched up. Mm-hmm. And if they matched up. 
they say, okay, this is a legit, legitimate relationship. If they did not, I'm sorry, you're going home. Or there would be appeals and mm -hmm. you would be on Angel Island for longer. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think these immigrants wrote poetry on the walls? So I think there are probably two parts to that. And I've read somewhere and I've never really looked that much into it. But it seems that there's a tradition of Chinese, of Chinese travel poetry. So in, in Imperial China... You are not um, you're not allowed to write unauthorized histories, and travelers, you know, would when they go from inns to inns, they actually be poetry boards where you can you know comment on like current affairs or you know things they are not allowed to say otherwise say in public, uh -huh. and the Angel Island poems might be an outgrowth of that, but I think the other reason why they wrote poems was you know they. You know, they were lonely. They were homesick. You know, they felt that they had failed their families. You know, many of them came to the U.S. as, you know, the family sent them. You know, they saved up all their money, you know, to come to the U.S. And they said, you know, but I failed. I'm still stuck here. And so were the poems in Chinese? Were the poems in English? Um, the poems are in Chinese. And most of the Chinese immigrants during that time came from the Canton province. So the Chinese script is the same whether it's in Mandarin or Cantonese, but I believe they are intended to be read in Cantonese. In Cantonese. Your book is a collection of poems, and you do imagine what the women might have written. Mm -hmm. Again, the, the women's writing was destroyed in a fire, correct? Yes. So I'd like to have you read an excerpt from one. Um, this is The Waves. The Waves. His father died suddenly, leaving a sick wife and four young girls. He decided to go to America, stake a claim on Golden Mountain, and come back for me. He wrote to me of Angel Island, where officers scrutinized his papers, and doctors made him stand naked as they inspected his eyes. He built a business selling groceries, sent money home, and came back to marry me. I threw up on the seas. He calmed me, made love to me. The first time I cried, silently. I had not been with another man, but I knew he had a woman. What could I do? There was no land in sight. This is in part about the maritime journey that mm -hmm. happens before they land. Yes. On United States, and then go to Angel Island. I threw up on the seas. He calmed me, made love to me. How was it to imagine their experience? You you visited Angel Island. Yes, I have. It was, it was both an interesting and a terrifying experience to, to imagine, you know, the experiences of these women. And this poem in particular, I wrote it from... I literally wrote it from the exclusion laws of the time. And in 1924, the laws changed that, the, that even the wives of the, of the Chinese could, could not come in to the, into the United States. Here I imagine what a woman who left China before the laws were put in place, but she arrived in the United States when the laws were in place and had to be deported. We're speaking with Denver poet Tiao Lim Go, and uh, 
she imagines what the poetry might have been of women who were detained at the Angel Island Immigration Station in her new collection, Islanders. And uh, Tiao, how does this relate to your own story, do you think? Well, my so I, I'm, an, I'm an immigrant. I'm a U.S. citizen now. But uh, I came as a student. I stayed on to work. I'm considerably more privileged than the Chinese back in you know, the early 1900s. But when, when I came, uh, when I first started working, it was during a time when there were many more applications for a work visa than, than there were visas available. And openings, yeah. And I actually got my visa through a lottery process. So I, I understand how arbitrary a lot of these decisions can, can be. Almost the, the, the randomness mm-hmm. of it. How about another excerpt from a poem um, called The Walls Speak? Uh, and again, poetry was written on the walls of this detention center. Um, anything you want to say before you read it? Well, the the walls speak is probably the one poem in the book that's okay. So many of the poems in the book, I wrote it from different, you know, from various facts or various laws or various stories I've read in the historical records. The walls speak is probably the one that's the most imagined. Okay, but I also. It's, it's one of my favorite poems in the book. Here we go. The walls speak. On the walls, I see poems brushed in ink, carved on wood, laments of lost women stumbling in the world. I read their stories and weep. Each time I pick up the knife, ready to etch my words into the wood, my hands tremble and I step back. At night, I lie awake. Will I always be a secret? So these were written, but they were also carved? Yes. Hmm. Um, There are actually, I think, two poems that are still almost entirely intact. Most of the poems have have almost faded into the wood, and you can't quite see them anymore. But there are a few that are intact. One of it was actually behind a mirror, which is why, why... it was, it's been preserved, and you can see they actually took a knife and they actually carved it into the wood. Would you recommend going to Angel Island? To- totally. Totally. <laughs> I mean, well, firstly, it's, you know, I think it's a very important history, especially at this time of, you know, this moment in the United States. Secondly, it's a beautiful place. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Chow Lim Go's book is called Islanders. You can read her poem, The Walls Speak, in full at cprnews.org. Just ahead, a museum in Denver dedicated to a single artist turns five and to celebrate sends some of its most precious paintings away. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. With Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. It's ironic that as Denver's Clifford Still Museum turns five, some of the artist's most important paintings are far from Denver. They're in London, on loan to the Royal Academy of Arts for a big show on abstract expressionism. It's the first time any of Still's works have been allowed to leave Denver since the museum, dedicated entirely to him, opened in 2011. 
But Denver's temporary loss is the art world's gain, says the museum's director, Dean Sobel. Dean, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And congratulations on the museum's fifth anniversary. It came as a surprise to some that this loan of nine paintings could be made. Doesn't the city's agreement with the still estate prohibit a loan like this? It doesn't. And we were sort of surprised when we were going through some of the core documents. And um, the fact that it didn't uh, expressly prohibit loans didn't make it easier. We had to you know, do the due diligence and make sure everyone uh, involved, including the city of Denver, who technically owns the art, I'm just the caretaker, <laughs> uh, was agreeable to it. And in fact, they were. Steele's paintings have rarely been shown outside the United States that must have factored into your thinking here. I, that certainly, um, but also I think the fact that this exhibition put still back into the canon of his contemporaries, people like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and Willem de Kooning, um, we felt still had a lot of exposure monographically by himself, even during his lifetime. He preferred that kind of presentation. So the ability to put him back into that movement, albeit briefly, um, and then have the works come back to Denver seemed like the best of both worlds. Does this help raise the profile of both Clifford Still, but also of the Clifford Still Museum? Absolutely. I mean, our our name, the museum, and the city is on the wall labels. Um, the international press, especially in London and in Europe, has been overwhelmingly positive, not only for the exhibition, but also for the power of those paintings within it. So we, we feel we really hit the target on our goals. You know, I think if you ask someone to name an abstract expressionist painter, they might cough up the name Jackson Pollock and might be less... Uh, uh, um, able to do so for Clifford Still. Uh, is that changing? I think it takes time, but I think it is changing. And, you know, even in terms of the ability to identify Jackson Pollock, I would consider a national triumph if if the man on the street could say uh, that name, but still really wasn't interested in fame and fortune. The way he conducted his affairs during his life made it more difficult for him to become a household name. And I think that's certainly part of our mission is to, among other things, you know, try to bring him back into the fold because I think his work, I know his work deserves that kind of attention. And yet he was a lion for other artists. He really was. And I think um, once you start to look at the writings by other critics or what artists from other generations say, he's um, exceptionally important, but somehow that legacy hasn't passed down to everybody, and certainly internationally. I should point out that while those paintings are on loan in London, the museum here in Denver is showing more than 200 of Clifford Still's drawings. Yep. The um, drawings is a whole other kind of reveal. Uh, as much as people think they may know the paintings, they're fragility, the fact that he withheld them during his lifetime, never gave them away like he often did with his paintings, makes the drawings an even bigger revelation. And so we made the decision, somewhat difficult, to take all the paintings down, and about 260 drawings are all you will see at the museum right now. But it's a very interesting retelling of some of the um, you know, stories we've been saying about this artist, but through his more personal and small-scale works on paper. What I recall about his career is that he started uh, with form, mm -hmm. um, portraits, for instance, and that as his career went on, form became abstract. Is that true of his drawings as well? I think so. But it's interesting. Sometimes um, it develops differently in the works on paper. For example, during his early career, he's making very traditional uh, graphite drawings, so sketches, things that are very heavily based on traditional line. Um, but at the same time, watercolors and pastels that get closer to that idea of an abstract reading of nature or of a figure. Um, and it's interesting. We tend to see that more specifically in the drawings because I think artists have a greater ability to experiment in the smaller scale works. And I think that really 
really comes to the fore in this exhibition. You have several thousand works on paper, <laughs> don't we you? We do. We have about, uh, oh, probably 2,400 works on paper uh, joining the 800 paintings. So it's a very, it really is the most intact body of work of any major artist uh, that we have here in Denver. The Clifford Still Museum in Denver is turning five. It's the museum dedicated entirely to the work of one artist, the abstract expressionist Clifford Still. Let's go back to 2011, Dean, when the museum opened. Remind us how Denver came to be home to more than 800 of Still's paintings. As you say, Denver is essentially the, the holder of, the, of these works of art now. It was really Still's wishes in his will um, that said he would give all this work to an American city, but never specified what that city would be. And so it took um, usually city cultural affairs officers or mayors. In our case, it was uh, then, Mayor, uh, then Mayor John Hickenlooper who believed it to be important enough to move it up their agenda. And so, you know, thankfully there are enough people here both on the government side and on the fundraising side and the cultural side to think that this was something Denver should do. And I I hope everyone's pleased five years in uh, with our results and and what it means to Denver and and the broader state. As the museum's first director, you had the chance to, in effect, reintroduce still to the general public. Um, He had famously turned his back on the art world in 1951 And as we said, his paintings were not well known. The Wall Street Journal wrote, Not many museum directors have the opportunity Dean Sobel has, which is nothing short of the chance to rewrite a chapter of American art history. Tall order, Dean Sobel. (laughs) Have you done that? I mean, it really has been kind of exceptional. I mean, I, I sensed when I started with the project that it was important. And I I don't know that everything that happens in the art world these days is important. It may get headlines or there may be attention drawn to, you know, major sales of particular works of art. But I did feel that this was something that um, had to be done. And it was really exciting that Denver was going to be the city where still was reintroduced. Um, We're not done with that work, though. We're still unrolling paintings. We're still, you know, uncovering his vast archive. And I often say it, and I think it's true, we're only a few steps ahead of the general public. So those who have been fo- uh, following the museum and seeing the exhibitions um, are only, you know, um, slightly behind what we're doing as we continue to uncover this vast body of work. That is to say, five years in, even the head of the Clifford Still Museum <laughs> has not seen all of Clifford Still's works. Several hundred, I'll admit to you, I've not seen. Okay. We have some photographic documentation, but that's what's exciting and makes it, you know, important to get to work, <laughs> get back to work. You've had to work under a number of restrictions imposed by Still's estate. For example, you can't show works by other artists. And the museum can't have a restaurant or a gift shop? I mean, it's interesting. You know, maybe I'm a a half glass, half full kind of guy. But the big big restriction is one that we all knew we can't show other artists in the original at the museum. The things like restaurants, and true, we couldn't have an auditorium. We probably wouldn't have built anyways because the Denver Art Museum and the Denver Public Library and the city has various facilities like that. Um, So in many ways, I think that was doing us a favor because it put such an an, an attention and, and focus on the art, the curatorial aspect of what museums do and not necessarily the, you know, visitor services side of things. Well, and there is something of a museum district forming there. So you've got the Clifford Still, you've got the Denver Art Museum, uh, you've got the Kirkland mm-hmm. coming into that area. As literally, well. <laughs> literally arriving as we speak, right. as they move the building down the road. <laughs> <laughs> the museum, your museum, the Clifford Still had about 60,000 visitors in 2012, 60,000. Mm-hmm. Since then, attendance has been about 40,000 mm-hmm. annually. 
Are you satisfied with that number? Is it a sustaining number? You know, it's a number that we weren't, you know, being a new museum created from whole cloth, we weren't sure what that, um, we certainly have the capacity. We've known that dropping admission has been a real key to getting this artist introduced to people who may not come through when we, you know, have our full fare. Um, so I think it's something that we're, we've seen a slight uptick over the last 18 months too, which I'm encouraged. But certainly I, I think if anything, all museum directors would tell you they wished more people would come to the museum and that's certainly the case at the Clifford Still. And h- how do you attract them? What's, what is the strategy? You know, I think social media has been really helpful. As, as many of your listeners would know, you know, they oftentimes it goes viral and other people are doing the work for you. We're such a visual institution that I think social media is um, particularly attractive for um, getting out new exhibitions or new discoveries that we find. And I think it just takes time. A museum that's only five years old, it takes time just to, one, get around to going, honestly, but also also, you know, having the word spread throughout the um, metro area and the state and beyond. I remember when you opened thinking, gosh, are they going to see repeat customers? That is to say, if you go to the Clifford Still and you are introduced to his work, are you motivated to go back a second or a third and a fourth time? What do your numbers show about that? It, well, interestingly, and we look at this a lot, even five years in, at least uh, probably 70, 75 percent of our visitors are first time, which we think is actually a really wonderful mark because we know from other statistics that people who come to the museum are, are very prone to recommend it to a friend. And so um, the fact that, you know, 25 percent our repeat visits and um, the balance is first-time visitors feels pretty good to me. I think that's probably a good metric right now. And the fact is, as you say, the discovery continues... So there's something new each time. That won't always be true, I suppose. Well, it's a relative concept. It will always be Clifford still. But like the drawing exhibition, I think, is a good example. Uh, even people who've been, you know, to every painting show we've done, I think, will be surprised by um, the uniqueness of these drawings and the specialness and their rarity. Uh, and I think we'll we'll continue to find ways to surprise people over the coming years. So how do you decide what to examine next? As you say, there's quite a bit that is, is still unfurled. It's interesting. It's not so mystical. We have lists of ideas and certain opportunities that present themselves. Um, We're very interested in the idea of a late career for Still because he really didn't show his work publicly after the 1950s, uh, probably, and maybe even some cases earlier. So the idea of understanding um, what it means for an artist to um, stay creative and how he continued to redefine what painting could be. I love this quote you gave uh, an art publication recently. A lot of the paintings still smell like they're drying. We're the first people to unroll them since he made them. What a feeling. It is. We we always talk about um, like exhumation. It feels like, you know, we're bringing these things back to life. And since still uh, traditionally rolled his paintings, uh, oil paint really can't dry when it's rolled in in tight tubes like that. And so there really is this um, not only visual sense when you unroll them, but you you do get that sense of walking into an artist's studio. So it's alternately exciting and a little, um, you know, freaky, too, uh, (laughs) coming upon these things that only still had seen before. An olfactory experience. (laughs) For visual art. Dean, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's always nice to come. Dean Sobel, director of the Clifford Steel Museum, which is turning five this month. And to celebrate, the museum is hosting a free weekend of events starting tomorrow. Coming up, a Prairie Home Companion comes to Denver this weekend. We'll hear from the show's new host, Chris Thiele, on Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The public radio mainstay, a Prairie Home Companion, has a new host after Garrison Keeler's retirement. He is mandolin virtuoso Chris Thiele of Nickel Creek and Punch Brothers. Thiele's well-known to Colorado audiences. He's been a fixture at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Well, this weekend, a Prairie Home comes to the Ellie Calkins Opera House. I spoke with Thiele just before he took the reins. Chris Thiele, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Ah, thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I read it was uh, actually Garrison Keillor's idea for you to take over as host. Did, did he call you up one day and say, I, I, I have a job for you? He did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, he, called, he called me. His, his, his name came up on caller ID, and I was in the middle of, uh, I was shedding some death-defying lick or, or other that Edgar Meyer had written for me to play. Um, on on a tour bus, we were on tour together, Edgar and me. And his his name came up on caller ID. I'm like right in the middle of this passage. I'll, I'll let it go to voicemail. But even right then, it didn't feel to me like this was going to be him asking me to come on the show like next week. He would occasionally call personally if it was short notice on a guest appearance possibility. And I let it go to voicemail and check the voicemail, and it's Garrison saying, "Um, Chris, call me back." Um, if something I think might be of interest, uh, or maybe it won't, I don't know. Um, call, just call me back. We'll talk. Uh, and so, <laughs> I'm going, whoa, huh? Uh, Garrison doesn't sound like that. I, I, I actually think for someone. I think it's, it's a mean Garrison Keeler. I think I'm really impressed. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. You're very kind. People are so nice in Colorado. Roundly. Uh-huh. Uh, very nice. It's hard for someone whose voice is pitched a full octave higher to, to really get in there on a Garrison Keeler impersonation. But anyway, I, I, I call him back and he outlines this plan that we're now in the middle of. And uh, I sat there on our tour bus sort of dumbstruck, but also nodding, just nodding my head as if this was somehow, you know, even as I'm I'm sort of what? I'm also, yeah, hmm. yeah, of course. Great. I'll become I'll become the next host of a Prairie Home Companion, like we talked about. You mentioned Edgar Meyer. That's the bassist that you collaborated yes. with. And uh, this plan, this plan, a succession plan, if you will, uh, from one host to the other. It, are you going to keep the name A Prairie Home Companion? Oh, yes, yes. A Prairie Home Companion will still be the name, despite the fact that I'll probably be discussing matters of the prairie rather less than Garrison has. Although, you know, I, growing up, in Southern California, I never felt like he wasn't speaking to me. And ostensibly, Southern California life is is different from that of, of uh, Midwestern life. Right. News from West so, Covina sounds a little different. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a different. There's less ice fishing. Um, but um, but I, I, I honestly feel that the regionalism on the show has, has, has never, you know, it was never something that that I felt excluded from, um, you know, I don't feel the need to to put on Midwestern airs. You know, I won't stand up there on on the stage at the Fitzgerald and and tell you stories about Lake Wobegon. It'll be that'll be different. But the show itself, the format of the show, will stay pretty much exactly the same. I'm such a fan. I I feel like we as people living in the 21st century need it now more than ever. This this two hours on Saturday when we we have the opportunity to sort of hold the cares of the week out for ins- inspection and even in celebration. 
Let me just say that Fitzgerald is the Fitzgerald Theater where the show has been based for a long time in St. Paul. And when you say the format will be the same, that is to say it's going to be still a very musical two hours and and what theatrical as well, because I think of things like Guy Noir, Private Eye and Dusty and Lefty, the Luckless Cowboys. Yes, exactly. Those sorts of things. Now, Guy Noir specifically and Dusty and Lefty um, will not be making an appearance sans Garrison, just again, because those are those are Garrison's thing, just like Lake Wobegon. But the show is one of these pieces of art that, that I don't think need the creator's direct involvement to live vibrantly on. And um, looking forward to testing that theory. I'm very confident that this is, this is going to be a satisfying two hours of radio. Give us a preview of something you'll bring to the show. Well, Garrison is a massive music fan. So am I. Uh, I've eaten, slept, and breathed it these 35 years. But, you know, I, I, I'm interested in the width and breadth of what I consider to be great music being made today. And, and I feel like all of that is on the table for, for Prairie Home Companion. So while, for instance, acoustic uh, leaning roots music will still have a, a very happy home, we'll be casting a, a wider neck, I think, texturally speaking. Who's your dream guest? Dream guest. Oh, let's see. Well, we had a we 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 just had a very near miss with Radiohead. I can't even tell you how <gasps> close it was. Oh no, to I want to hear Radiohead uh, on a there, Prairie Home. I know. Me too. Let me tell you, and we uh, were so close. Tangela, I can talk. See, I can talk about that because it just <laughs> it didn't just happen. didn't happen. <laughs> um, but boy, they were in. They were. I, I I have to say, they were into it, which I couldn't believe. I was so excited. They were into it. We couldn't make the logistics work out. Last second, we got to it too, just too late in the game to make it work out. But that they are still a dream guest for me. Um, so let's see. I boy, I adore the work of Kendrick Lamar. You know, you know who would be fun to have on the show is Louis C.K. Don't you think? The comedian, the edgy comedian. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think he would be good. There's so, oh, there's so much stuff I wish I could talk about right now that, that, that is going to happen that is really fun. So stay tuned, as they say, in the biz. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Chris Thiele, who is the incoming host of the public radio fixture, a Prairie Home Companion. And Thiele is something of a fixture himself on the Colorado music scene having performed in the state many times and participated in music festivals here as well. You announced the new house band for A Prairie Home in August. This includes two of your bandmates from Punch Brothers, as well as fiddler Brittany Haas and drummer Ted Poor, who has performed with singer-songwriter Andrew Bird. Uh, You also announced some new duet partners. Are you nervous about filling these shoes? No, no, I'm not. Um, the reason being that no one, no one could fill Garrison Keillor's shoes. This is not, you know, he he is one of a kind, truly one of a kind. There will never be another Garrison Keillor. So, so that's not the gig. Yeah. The gig is is making sure that the show lives on again beyond his direct involvement. And the nerves that I have are that we would. Um, really as a fan of the show, will we lose the show? I don't want to lose the show. I, I don't feel that I will personally lose us the show. I, don't, I, I think I can, I can do this. I love putting on a show. That's, that's my thing. It's been my thing since I was seven. Hmm. And actually, the way that I 
deliver a show, um, the way that I make an attempt to connect with with whatever audience is present is um, is heavily influenced by Garrison. Seeing as, I mean, honestly, every week growing up, we listen to the show. In the first year, you'll be doing 13 episodes, the first season, I guess. Uh, Garrison yeah. has, has typically done 26, so it's a bit of a, a ramping up. And I understand some stations in the public radio system are, are giving the show a one-year grace period to see how listenership does. <laughs> so, yes. Um, I want to play an excerpt from an interview that you did with a really big name that came on the show when you were guest hosting. Oh, excellent. I think I know what you're about to do. Paul Simon is here. Right here at the Fitzgerald Theater, ladies and gentlemen. Paul, this is really fun, man. Yeah, for, for you it is. Yes. Wow, it was really awkward because he was just kind of not playing ball at the beginning there. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, <laughs> he was giving me a little bit of a hard time. What have you learned from guest hosting the program? And maybe specifically, what did that interview teach you? Um, that is the beauty of live radio is that that kind of thing, you know, there's no uh, – some editor somewhere would have just taken that right out. And we wouldn't have, have been able to share that that moment, like that that kind of odd – that sensation of oh, oh my gosh is this is this okay? Is it, it seems okay. Okay, great. Now, now there's music and wow, what a ride! I think that that really is the beauty of live radio. We can't script this stuff. How are you going to handle the travel? Because you live in Portland, Oregon, and the show is going to continue to be based at at this Fitzgerald Theater in downtown St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah, I'll be I'll be hitting the hitting the airport rather frequently for the time being. My my wife is on a television show that shoots in Portland, Oregon. So so here I am. And we'll be here certainly for the duration of the show. After after that, um, we may move back to New York City. I, d- I don't know. Your wife is Claire Coffey, and, and she's on a program called Grimm. Is there a, a kind of department or regular feature that you're working on that you could tell us about? So one thing that we're going to do... Um, that I'm really excited about is and see here if I say it we can't chicken out <laughs> uh, we're going to do a live request on the show basically you'll be encouraged as listeners to to hop on the internet at some point and recommend a song that you'd like to hear us do it could be anything but there there are two rules one of which is that two musicians on the show have to have at least heard the song before and then the other rule is that no one participating in the live request can have performed the song before. Hmm. So um, we look to court a little bit of chaos, and and you know if we can if we can rope whatever spoken word guest happens to be on the show that week, there'll always be one. There'll be two musical guests and, and a spoken word guest. Spoken word guest being you know a comedian or actor, yeah. storyteller, novelist, poet, something along those lines. But to get them in on the whole process, I suspect, will be enjoyable for everyone. But that's that's a little segment we're working on. We have new serialized, quote-unquote, dramas in the works, some new product lines. We have potentially hired a new in-house critic who is actually not real, but uh, – <laughs> But a character, a new in-house critic from a failed wine magazine, or perhaps he he 
<laughs> he himself was actually too pretentious, too snobby for the wine publication that had hired him previously. But we, <laughs> we, we feel sorry for him and want to give him a chance to review, you know, regular household products, <laughs> shaving creams, perhaps snow tires, things, things of that nature. Um, and uh, I, he hasn't seemed to be able to dial back on his pretentious, um, <laughs> you know, wine wine review style uh, lingo. Right. This baby wipe has hints of chocolate and uh, no, notes of and, <laughs> yes, exactly. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll say that yes. you're you're keeping the longtime sound effects expert that's on the show. Oh yeah. What what, what would we do without Fred? This and you know, some of the sponsors may may remain the same. They, we've had their loyal support for so long. You know, it'd be a shame to shame to lose them. Certainly, powder milk biscuits, powder milk biscuits are, right. are ever tasty, ever tasty, and um, and expeditious naturally. One of my favorite onion headlines of all time uh, was two dozen more bodies found in Lake Wobegon. Have you have you seen that? <laughs> no, yeah, no, but I like it. I mean, it's obviously playing with this really. I don't know, tame view of Lake Wobegon. It says, well, local residents insist it has been a quiet week in their hometown out on the edge of the prairie. State police officials descended on the small community Tuesday when another 24 corpses surfaced along its placid waterfront. I think I bring this up as a way of asking about edge. Does the show need more edge? So I actually sort of reject that the show doesn't have edge. You know, there will be things that happen on on the new Prairie Home Companion that probably strike some in the audience as being fairly radical choices, although, uh, again, we're not going to be courting controversy. Um, I don't think uh, – so we're not going to be looking to add edge to the program, nor are we going to be looking to um, to soften all the edges. Thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Singer and mandolin player Chris Thiele is the new host of A Prairie Home Companion. Thiele is in Denver Saturday to broadcast the show from the Ellie Calkins Opera House. There are a few stories we'd like your help on. First off, we are scheduled to speak with Governor John Hickenlooper next week. What questions do you have for him? Email news at CPR.org. Please include your first and last name and where you live, so your questions for the governor at news at cpr.org. Also, we're trying to figure out what happened with the ballot measure this past election. Amendment T would have eliminated slavery entirely from Colorado's Constitution. The final vote is so close, there may have to be a recount. One explanation of what happened is that the language of the measure was complicated, confusing, and so voters said no. But is that conventional wisdom correct? Tell us why you voted for or against Amendment T. Help us shed some light on this. Again, email us, news at cpr.org. We're going to leave you with a Radiohead cover by Chris Thiele's progressive bluegrass band, Punch Brothers. This is Kid A. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.